Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Kelly Driscoll. In this episode, you'll hear part one of my conversation with Benjamin Jenkins, university archivist and associate professor in the Department of History and Political Science at the University of Laverne. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Kelly Driscoll, and today I'm so pleased to invite Benjamin Jenkins, University Archivist and Associate Professor in the Department of History and Political Science at University of Laverne. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here today. I am happy to talk about uh, the wonderful things that Digication has allowed me to do with my scholarship, and more importantly, all the wonderful things that it enables my students to do in the classroom. Oh, well, thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine, and I thought it would be really fun today to kick our conversation off talking about some of your recent books. Um, as I was preparing for our call today, I learned that Ben is author of a couple books that piqued my interest um, just because of my background a little bit. Ben, I was actually um, born on the, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was an Air Force Base, born in the Air Force Base Hospital in Victorville, California. And uh, although I grew up on the East Coast in Virginia, always had this kind of magnetic pull back to California and um, always dreamt about having a yard with citrus trees <laughs> in the back. And actually, that did come to fruition. Pardon oh, the pun. Wonderful. But, I, yeah, um, I get it a lot. Yeah. I didn't make it to Southern California, but I lived for about 10 years in uh, Silicon Valley in Palo Alto and did happen to have some orange trees and lemon trees in my backyard. And now we're back on the East Coast, so I miss those a bit. And I don't know if you know if they would grow in the climate here in North Carolina, where I am now. Um, but I would love to hear how you got interested in citrus and some of your explorations. Um, the two books of Ben's that um, got me interested in having him talk about this today were Octopus's Garden, How Citrus and Railroads Reshaped Southern California, and California's citrus heritage. So Ben, tell our listeners a little bit about these. I'd be happy to. Um, so first of all, there's a variety of citrus for just about any place in the United States. I could name a few that would do pretty well in North Carolina, which is- you Awesome, know, I'm glad to hear. <laughs> it's, reasonably, it's reasonably sunny out there. You get a pretty healthy amount of rain from my understanding. So, yes, yes um, we do. And citrus, orange trees in particular, are very finicky about having a constant water supply. But as far as my interest in citrus as sort of this historical topic, you know, growing up in and now working in Southern California, you're sort of surrounded by the remnants of the citrus industry. I live, for instance, about 10 minutes away from an old citrus packing house, which has been converted into retail and apartment space. So it's sort of a mixed mm. use area today, um, but it still has old orange and lemon packing equipment. It's right along the railroad tracks. You can see the retractable doors that would have opened that would have allowed the workers to unload their fruits directly onto ventilated refrigerator cars. 
So Southern California is filled with stuff like packing houses, public murals. Uh, we're currently building a new rail line that connects Los Angeles to the Inland Empire, to places like Laverne. And this new rail line has you know, all kinds of citrus orange motifs on some of the bridges and tunnels that are being uh, built along this line. So this weird fascination that Southern California has with citrus is what really got me to try to investigate, you know, why, why is that? Why do we have a fixation on something that really disappeared from our part of the landscape 70 or 80 years ago? Um, citrus really disappeared after World War II, and yet the image, the memory of it has made this indelible mark on the collective psyche of Southern California. Uh, circling back to a point that you made, uh, citrus is still huge in the Golden State. Most of it has moved up north to places like Silicon Valley. Uh, the Central Valley, San Joaquin Valley in particular, produces just about more fruits than ever before. Um, but in investigating why citrus was such a huge part of Southern California's self-image and the image that it tried to broadcast of the state to the rest of the country – I came up with the fact that it really is inseparable from the railroads. Uh, the railroad owners, railroad corporations worked incredibly closely with citrus uh, ranch owners to advertise, to pull together a multi-ethnic, multicultural workforce. For instance, a lot of the Chinese who built the transcontinental railroads, who receive a lot of attention and scholarship, uh, would go on to uh, become pivotal in the California citrus industry. China has been growing oranges for millennia, longer than just about any other world culture. So a lot of Chinese farmers who had experience growing oranges, who worked on the railroads, then naturally transitioned into being citrus workers. Uh, the railroad also played a huge role in transforming the landscape, in getting water projects started, in industrializing, bringing the uh, heavy machinery, the packing house equipment that was necessary to undertake industrial farming on the colossal scale that growers in Southern California envisioned. And as I said, we've, we've got this new rail line that we're building that's just decorated with citrus motifs. You can take three or four existing rail lines across Southern California that will take you uh, alongside different packing houses and uh, former orange groves. So even though these elements of the landscape are not as dominant as they used to be with, for instance, automobiles replacing railroads, they're still an important part of our history, and I think they're pivotal in explaining what Southern California is, how it created its identity as this distinct geocultural entity within the broader whole that is the Golden State. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And as a kind of next step in that, how um, you came – so you clearly have a deep – uh, interest in history and did you always live in Southern California or is this something that kind of grew out of your interest in this, um, in the citrus and railroads? Well, I like to tell people that there's sort of this fascination that a lot of young boys have with railroads. Some of them grow out of it. Some of them don't grow out of it. I did not grow out of it. I mean, I grew up with a full set of Thomas the Tank Engines, those old uh, wooden block trains that you could put together and run Thomas along. Um, so that that part of my – that sort of juvenile interest, I guess, never completely abandoned my psyche. But the oranges, I think, are this, – there's this weird dichotomy that Southern California has with oranges where it's on a lot of different public art projects. It's on a lot of city seals in places like Laverne or Upland yeah. where my apartment is. But there's no orange groves here. We don't 
physically grow oranges anymore the way that we did before in the early 20th century. And so this dichotomy of, okay, the image remains, but the reality is that the oranges are grown somewhere else. Well, what, what is that? What's the history there? How did that come to be? And why is that so mm-hmm. stuck in our mental craw, if you'll allow me to use mm-hmm. a kind of half-baked metaphor? Um, so that's, I mean, just being surrounded by these elements, growing up in Southern California and, you know, seeing the railroad every night when I went to sleep, I would hear the Santa Fe railroad, you know, toll along the tracks, let its horn out aggressively loudly. Um, so it's just sort of like you're saturated with this history. It's sort of bombarding you. And I wanted to see why that is. What's the reality of it? How does that align with the image that we're projecting of Southern California? Thanks. And I can just imagine hearing you speak about this, the kind of excitement and passion for history that you're bringing into your classrooms today. Um, And as I introduced you, I mentioned you're not only associate professor in the Department of History and Political Science, but also the university archivist, which makes a lot of sense with your passion for history. Um, So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the current courses that you're teaching that are utilizing ePortfolios and talk a little bit about how, as, um, as you're working with these students, how you may connect the idea of ePortfolio to teaching and learning history. So there's two classes where I use ePortfolio. Uh, the one that really receives the lion's share of attention where the entire final project of the class is built around digital portfolios is my internships in public history class, which is also an honors course. We sort of get a mix of humanities students in history and English, as well as just general students in the honors program who could be majoring in anything from biology to business. But the whole point of that class is to really get people to understand two things. First of all, we're all products of history, right? Like the the experiences that we've lived through, that our families come from, that of the regions that we live in, of the institutions where we attend school, all have some sort of legacy that we play into. The second thing that they learn is that we are all historical. Every one of us has some sort of trace that we leave behind for future generations. Uh, back in the 19th century, that would have been maybe letters, correspondence that you exchanged with previous students. Uh, today, it's more digital stuff, uh, whether those are papers that are written for class that a lot of students will write using Google Docs, whether it's the social media posts that people use to sort of engage with the world around them. That's the mark that people are leaving on history. And so really the point of this class is to get people to pull together some of those digital creations that they're making in everyday life, whether that's for school, for leisure, for work, and to sort of centralize them into a portfolio that encapsulates who they are at a given moment in time. I like to tell students that these portfolios that they're putting together are a time capsule, that five, Mm. 10, 50 years from now, future students at Laverne will be able to open these up and get a glimpse of what life was like in the 2020s or 2010s when I started teaching the class. It feels like forever ago because of, you know, COVID and all the crazy things that have happened <laughs> yeah, in the 2020s. But, you know, let's let's leave that out of this discussion. Um, really, the portfolios that students are putting together in these classes are kind of a self-curated museum almost, um, Mm -hmm. where each student is saying, this is who I am as a student, as a sibling, as a member of a family, as a son or daughter, as a worker, as a college student. And so they are essentially getting to tell their own story, to leave behind a legacy in their own words, 
so that they're sort of making history rather than letting other people make history about them. Mm, I love hearing this. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's such a unique uh, approach. Very often when we're speaking to individuals about their use of e-portfolios, the audience is something that they're thinking about as being much more immediate. Um, Maybe the you know, it could be just the teacher in their course, or maybe the peers and teacher in their course, or people within their program. Uh, maybe it's potential employers that they're going to share it with when they're, um, you know, looking for internships or jobs. But it's rare to hear it being thought about as this opportunity to leave your legacy or as something that may be a value to students' generations from now. So uh, thank you for sharing that. So what what's the student's kind of response when you talk to them about this? Because I know some students at University of Learn are kind of cre- Laverne creating these portfolios about the kind of overall Laverne experience. And then um, maybe coming to your class, having already started a portfolio or maybe using it in some other courses. So What's their kind of response when you frame it in this way? Because it may be different than what they're hearing and other opportunities where they've been using e-portfolios there. Their response really tends to evolve over the course of the semester. I sit them down on day one and say, here's what we're doing. And their first response is, oh my gosh, this is such a huge project. I have to go out and curate uh, oral histories. I have to curate work that I've done for class. I have to do all these written reflections, sort of placing it in context. I have to make it overlap with the scholarship that Professor Jenkins is making us read and engage with for class. By the end of the semester, though, their views have evolved. And just about every time, every student tells me, this is a really valuable exercise. It made me feel like I am important, like my story mm-hmm. matters, like future generations are going to see my life as significant. Mm-hmm. Each We spe- spend a lot of class time sort of going over the history of the university, how it sort of transformed from this small religious college into the uh, large multicultural center that it is today. I should also mention that Laverne is an HSI, Hispanic-serving institution, which means that I believe over 40% of our students are Latino, predominantly Mexican-American. And students really appreciate the opportunity to take their heritage and to insert it into what until recent decades would have been a predominantly white institution. Uh, So they get to insert that diversity of uh, heritage, of ethnicity, uh, LGBTQ students in particular, have made some really dynamic portfolios for class where they say, you know, this is my identity and I finally feel like I'm in a space where that is important, where I don't have to hide it anymore. So the overall point of these portfolios is that students have this amazing tendency to use it as a way to broadcast their identity, to sort of self-validate and to feel a sense of belonging at this academic community, which, you know, I hope I'm giving them educational tools. I'm giving them the skills that they need to put together an archive to succeed as historians, um, to manage digital information systems or to, to craft a portfolio that'll be useful to them later. But I'm also hopefully giving them an opportunity to validate the person. And digication is really just brilliant in allowing students to bring together video, audio, text, any kind of format to fulfill the parameters of that assignment and to make students feel like I'm a valuable member of society. Let me show you why. It's just 
the fact that students are so willing to engage with this and see it as a tool to, you know, thrive academically and personally, it's really empowering to, for me as an instructor to see at the end of every semester. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope we might also have the opportunity to speak to one of your students. I'll, I'll chat with you about that after our conversation today, because I think that hearing their perspective and experience too is part of this kind of journey that they have in your courses to start to recognize, you know, you mentioned belonging and that's something that, you know, from our perspective is a big reason why we're doing what we're doing at Digication, <laughs> that we really want this to be their kind of their space to tell their story, to share who they are, who they want to be. And you're really framing it as the opportunity to not only discover their belonging within the school community, but also their belonging to the institution as part of this broader history, right? So it's yes. a really powerful, um, powerful tool in in the way that you positioned it with your students. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that many of our listeners um, will probably have a, a takeaway from this conversation and start thinking about that bigger picture in terms of the history of the institution and how their students connect and its connections to the community as well. Um, so I mentioned before we chatted today that there was another um, publication of yours called The Digital Frontier, um, Archival Digitization and Modern Usage of the Human Record. And as the university archivist, I was hoping you could share a little bit, uh, you have a unique perspective here and how you see ePortfolios may value the institution in terms of its own archives. I appreciate you bringing that up because really the point of that short piece, that short book, is to try to get people to think about what kind of records they're leaving behind today. What do we consider history? A thousand years ago, it would have been manuscripts, parchment paper. Um, a thousand years before that, it would have been stone or wooden tablets that we would see used in places like Greece or Rome. Today, it's tweets. Today, it's Instagram <laughs> stories. Today, or actually, maybe it's not tweets. What do we call them now? X's? That's X's. I, yeah, sorry. I, my, my dearest apologies to Elon Musk. I, mea culpa. Um, but the point remains, the, the memes that people are making and sharing with each other in group chats, the right. videos that we see on Snapchat, um, the Facebook jokes that people are sharing with each other on social media, mm -hmm. as much as we don't think of them these way, this way, these are historical documents that future generations are going to use to sort of understand our lived experience. So the point in writing this piece, uh, The Digital Frontier, is that I said we really need to be mindful about what it is that we're bringing together what kind of personal archive we're leaving uh, through our digital footprint. And Digication is one of those platforms that allows us to be mindful, to be intentional in how we curate that material, how we shape it into a narrative for future generations. Um, I like to bring up this quotation in class to my students about from Hamilton, the you know smash hit mm -hmm. musical, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. 
Mm. they get to tell their own story, right? Rather than letting history sort of happen to them, they get to be active agents in sort of owning, this is who I am as a student. This is who I am in this increasingly digital world. This is who I am in the incredibly global 21st century. Because a lot of students do share in their portfolios, here's what I'm doing outside of school. Here's the international travel that I've done. Or here's a volunteer work that I've done on an for Red Cross, for... Um, Peace Corps for other international endeavors. Really, digication does allow them to showcase global digital citizenship in the 21st century. Um, so really that piece, the digital frontier that I put together kind of aligns very nicely with digication's mission of uh, letting you communicate the self. And sometimes that's in a professional way. Sometimes that's in a personal way. Sometimes that's in a historical way. It really just shows the multiplicity of uses that we're able to get out of digication. And to my mind, as an archivist, it really is a brilliant tool for us to be able to take the raw stuff of the digital materials that we're leaving behind and craft it into something more meaningful, more focused that communicates a story. Thank you. And I was curious, um, when you're working with the students, you know, you clearly come into the classroom with the mindset that they all have a very valuable story to tell, right? Um, when you start talking to your students, do they, are they feeling that about themselves right away? Or is it something where you're kind of creating a space to draw that that out of them? That's an excellent question. Usually it's a mix of the two. You know, you've got some students who feel like, you know, nothing that I do is worthwhile. I'm just a college student. What does it matter? And sometimes you really have to get them to self-reflect, to be introspective about what about my life is valuable. I had a student last semester, for instance, say, oh, you know, I'm not super involved on campus. I don't know about what about my story would be super interesting. And then he goes on to share that he's a basketball coach and peer mentor at a local high school. And I thought, well, there's your story right yeah. there. You're still in college and you're already taking time to influence the next generation, you know, to encourage, to inspire, to educate young people. So usually if you can get the students to reflect, to think a little bit more deeper about themselves than just I'm a college student here in a classroom, they're able to tease out some sort of value. Whether it's stuff like mentorship that they're doing, uh, their stories as immigrants or the children of immigrants who maybe are first-generation college students. Um, sometimes it takes a little bit of <clears throat> deep thinking on their part, but invariably, every student sees that his or her life is valuable, is uh, worth communicating to the next generation. Although sometimes you really do have to kind of get them to think very critically about their lived experiences before they yeah. reach that conclusion about themselves. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was also curious when you're working with the students, are you providing them any kind of um, support in how this kind of reflective process that they're going through as they're developing their e-portfolio connects specifically to learning history? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, all the classes, the lectures that students have to listen to before going through their portfolios sort of familiarize them with what history is, what is the history of our institution, the University of Laverne, 
and sort of what's the history of archives? How have they come together? How have they transformed over time from these institutions that kind of privilege the elite and nobility and royalty to institutions that safeguard and uh, spread democracy these days? Um, mm-hmm. That's a shift that we that a lot of archival theorists like to date to about the 1790s, the French Revolution, sort of transforming archives from something that belongs to the king to something that is supposed to serve the nation, right? To safeguard democracy, to make information, history, knowledge available to everyone. Um, that's just one example of the kind of learning that we do in class. Students do have to sit through lectures. We have uh, detailed seminar-style discussions around historical readings about the University of Laverne, about archives in general. And so those sources, those uh, that forms of scholarly engagement really uh, helps them put together their portfolios, sort of as the set of informal guidelines. They also have a written prompt that they have to follow. I'd be happy to share that with you after uh, this if you think it would be Oh, valuable. yeah, that would be great. We can always include things in the resources kind of area of notes okay. for our publication. So, wonderful. yeah, any of that that you would like to share would be wonderful. Our community of listeners is always very interested in any kind of prompts that um, various uh, teachers are using, especially those that may be embarking on the use of e-portfolios for the first time, or maybe looking for ways to, you know, continue to have students thinking deeply and responding to the work that they're doing in the course or experiences that they're having outside of the classroom. So that would be wonderful. Yes, we can follow up about that as well. Okay, excellent. Yeah, because that that I do have very detailed outlines about your portfolio should include, you know, these five or six sections. And yep. here's examples of content that you might have. So they're not just like creating it all from scratch. They have a set of guidelines about like, okay, yeah, here's generally you've got what some I should be doing. scaffolding in place. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there in the portfolios that I've had the pleasure of reading, uh, the the reflections that the students have written are really what led me to discovering uh, discovering you, Ben. So it's wonderful to hear that uh, you're open and sharing some of the scaffolding that you've got in place. That it's leading students through this. Um, wonderful reflective process. The The quality of the f- reflections is really quite strong. I agree. Um, there, it's- so I was um, interested in hearing about the um, Capstone project. Um, we work with a number of institutions that use ePortfolios specifically in the Capstone experience. And I was um, curious if that was something that you'd always done or if you started with the internship uh, course and then went into using it with the capstone. Tell us a little bit about your UCB portfolio specifically in that area. I'd love to. So that's the second class that I use ePortfolio in. It is the senior seminar for history and political science students at the University of Laverne. Uh, We as a department have been using Digication to capture information for students for four or five years now, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Last semester was the first time that I taught the class using this portfolio system. And I was super familiar with it for having taught my internships class. And it's the way that we use it in this course, I think is a lot more professionally focused. It's not as Mm -hmm. personal. The audience is generally the instructor. 
mm-hmm. or potential employers that students will be able to share their work with in the future. Um, but basically, the Capstone Project asked students, okay, you've written a senior seminar, an argument-based 30 or 40-page paper. That's really the backbone of this portfolio, showing what you're capable of academically, what your, what your research capabilities are. On top of that, we asked them to add reflections about their learning, uh, examples of previous writings or previous academic work that they've done, uh, maybe as sophomores or even as freshmen at the university. And so together, these different assignments and reflections get collated into kind of this matrix that shows how have I evolved as a student? What are the different learning outcomes that I've embodied at the University of Laverne? How have I met the curricular goals for the Department of History and Political Science, as well as for the university as a whole? So really, it kind of acts as a checklist where students are able to say, okay, here's the five or six departmental um, learning outcomes that I'm supposed to get as a history major. Here are the assignments that I'm sort of mapping each one of those competencies towards, showing how I have achieved the baccalaureate learning outcomes. So this is very much geared towards um, also getting our accreditation and keeping our accreditation, Mm -hmm. uh, showing that students are meeting the learning outcomes that we've set for them. We share these portfolios with the accrediting agency that I can't remember the name of right now because it just changed names. It used to be called WASC, which is the- It was WASC, yes. Yes, it was WASC, but now it's- We'll we'll include that in the notes too. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I apologize to WASC for not remembering their new name. It was just WASC forever, so- (laughs) Yes, yes. But yeah, the portfolio really is sort of- uh, something that we have students do not only for our good to show, hey, we're you know we are uh, meet, helping them meet these baccalaureate learning outcomes, but also we give them the opportunity to showcase their professional skills. They can download these portfolios later, show them to potential employers. Obviously, these portfolios are living documents, so they can add new materials over time as they enter the workplace, maybe sharing work projects that they've completed, or if they go into academia, publications that they've been able to issue. Uh, remind me to talk about this, and I can actually discuss how I use digication for my uh, promotion process at the oh, university. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll absolutely. Put a, yeah, we could put a pin on that. I'll, I'll put a pin on that. Okay, thank, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll unpin that in a minute. But yeah, this... I think the use of the ePortfolio in our capstone class is a lot more intentional and standardized. It's not a much, as much about individual creativity as it is about embodying professional scholarship. This concludes part one of our conversation. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative ePortfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.